0: Welcome to the Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Um, I'm your host today, Luke Fowler, here with my uh, co-host, Jackie Kettler. And we have uh, one of our our colleagues and good friends from the School of Public Service, John Freemuth, here um, to talk about some uh, environmental issues and some conferences going on. Uh, And, John, you have so, so many titles these days. And so I'm I'm not going to take a chance at messing these all up. So I'm going to let you
1: introduce yourself with your titles. And I wouldn't be offended if you did mess them up. But I'm... (laughs) I'm a professor of environmental policy. I'm the um, Andrus Professor of Environment and Public Lands, and a distinguished professor at Boise State. So that's enough. Thank you. <laughs> oh no, that definitely uh, definitely makes you sound like an expert on everything. It does. Definitely,
0: definitely well enough to talk to us
2: today. <laughs> Do so, you want to describe what the Andrus Chair is?
1: The Andrus Chair is still kind of being worked out, but it's it's an endowed chair. Uh, I spent a lot of time, as did others, getting the the, uh, first endowment of the Andrus Center finished. It's one and a half million dollars. Now we're working on scholarship endowments for students. But essentially, there is a stipend that comes out of the endowment for me to do a lot of public service. This thing, uh, go to the Western governors, write, um, work with students in some capacity, um, much like the Frank Church chair does.
2: Great, and the Andrus Center is, just for our listeners, do you want to describe what the Andrus Center is?
1: Well, the Andrus Center was basically formed to um, further the legacy of Cecil Andrus for younger listeners. He was the four-term governor of Idaho and the Secretary of Interior during the Carter administration. THREE PARTS OF A MISSION, ENVIRONMENT AND PUBLIC LANDS, EDUCATION AND LEADERSHIP. WE DO THIS GREAT WOMEN IN LEADERSHIP CONFERENCE EVERY SEPTEMBER. THIS YEAR ON AN ENVIRONMENTAL THEME. FORMER SECRETARY SALLY Jewell WILL BE THERE. OH, THAT'S GREAT. WE WORK, WE'VE DONE A LOT WITH THE MCCLURE CENTER AT THE U OF I AND OTHERS TO TALK ABOUT PRE-K EDUCATION. CESA'S WHOLE CAREER BEGAN, NOT ON ENVIRONMENT, BUT ON FIGHTING FOR KINDERGARTEN FOR HIS DAUGHTERS AND OTHER YOUNG FOLK, AND THEN, so leadership, education, and the environment, and we try we we limit it to that. So, uh, as part of that, you have a big
0: meeting conference yep. coming up uh, that you want to talk to us about because it sounds pretty exciting from what you've already told it, me.
1: It does, and it and and some people have very well helped us with this and and came to us with like this idea, notably Pat Ford, a long-term salmon advocate and and as he likes to call himself the lubricant to try to bring people together rocky barker who wrote a lot on fish and salmon but what we're doing is bringing people together to see if they can continue a conversation on deal with the problem of all this now let me let me just quote cease for a second then i'll come back he once wrote it is it whitebird hill that i can get steamed up over my greatest frustration in politics in the mid-1950s, about 400,000 salmon returned up the snake system each year. Now they're not. And and so he, he, when he was governor, fought a lot on trying to deal with this issue. What we're trying to do now is there's things going on. It's not about the dams, per se. The dams are part of the equation to many people, the four lower Snake River dams. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the issue is... Um, Bonneville Power, which is our uh, regional federal power marketing agency where a lot of us get some power from, is uh, also tasked with providing revenue and resources to mitigate for impacts on the fisheries. Well, they can't sell their power anymore at the rate they could. So they are getting a shortfall now in the the money that could go to mitigation for, for wildlife and fish. So this, unless we get on this, could accelerate the decline of the fisheries. It's not good for those of us who are energy consumers. It's not good for the regional economy. Um, and yes, the dams are part of the equation, but da- salmon advocates that are coming, many of them are saying, we don't want to do this at the expense of, of communities that depend on uh, getting their, their uh, grain and so forth to market up north in the, in the, in the um, wheat country, the Palouse. And so it's seeing it's can we create a politics to move the discussion forward? We're, we're trying to get people in the room to see if they can, you know, half of this are the fun conversations in the hall. See if they can come to a place where they can work with each other. That's the goal.
2: And so the goal of the conference is to figure out to try to thinking about salmon, long term health of the population in addition to Balancing that with energy, things like that. Yes, and
1: the needs of communities. And, of course, salmon are vitally important to our tribes, Mm Nez Perce and others. They've been dealing with them as a cultural resource for a thousand years.
2: So who's participating in the conference? Well,
1: the listeners, there's a lot of folks from different perspectives, communities, advocates. The orca is now in the conversation because we're, we're having orca issues because of salmon issues. People, listeners might be aware of, Governor Little will kick off the conference, Governor, uh, Senator Simpson will give the luncheon speech, sorry, Congressman Simpson, and then Elliot Mainzer. I'm who, sure
2: he won't mind a promotion. You know, he's, <laughs>
1: no, I think he's happy doing what he's doing. And then Elliot Mainzer, who, who runs BPA. Those are the big three. And then there's staff from other senators' offices in Oregon and Washington, advocates, uh, agricultural interests, community interests. And it's a legacy issue, again, of Governor Andrus's.
0: Yeah, and so this is a, a pretty big deal that you're doing because this is, um, I mean, I, I don't want to throw out the word climate change. Uh, it's in there. But, you know, this is definitely one of these uh, challenges that comes out of that, right? Because yes. we're having less water, we're having changes in our climate yes. patterns. Um, and so a, as we talk, and we've talked extensively on the show over the last year or so, and we talk about as a faculty regularly, like, there's not easy solutions nope. to these problems. And what they really take to, to solve and what... Is what you're doing here, right? It's just getting a yeah. lot of people in the room and going, all right, how do we actually do this? Let's put the partisanship, let's put the politics aside, and just yeah. really talk about what the problem is. Well,
1: look, you nailed it. I mean, the issue, I mean, and, and you know probably more, I don't do as much climate. I deal with it with wildland fire and things. The issue is Say it's caused by aliens. Whatever's the cause, the issue isn't arguing over that anymore. It's what do we do about it? And that's where we have to get in the room and decide how can we do things that don't adversely affect people unnecessarily in the name of dealing with the problem. Let's stop talking about the science of it and get to the the politics of it.
0: Yeah, and again, um, and too bad our, our colleague Jen Schneider's not here today because she could probably talk about this a little bit more expertly yeah, than I can. Ground. She's great. She's uh, great. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is what a, a lot of the research shows is like when we actually start dealing with the problems of adaptation and mitigation, it's like when we stop talking about it in like political rhetoric terms yes. on the news and we just start locking ourselves in rooms and like, all right, we're gonna we're not leaving until we figure out a way to do this. Well,
1: you know. That's what Governor Andrus occasionally did when he was governor is lock people in the room and say, if you leave first, I'm adopting the other guy's solution tended to work to some extent. <laughs> hey, that's a good idea. I'm going to have to try that around the university. <laughs> yeah.
2: So uh, so you've got some great people coming to this conference. Is there a way to, for um, citizens to kind of pay attention to what's going on? We
1: will. Um, it's $75 to register and we'll try to film some of it. Um, We're still working on that. We will make the transcripts available and a white paper that we will write fairly quickly. Tracy Andrews has told me to get that out there this time where people can see what was discussed. Um, We want everybody involved. We couldn't have every interest at the table, and we acknowledge that up front. But it has to involve all those interests.
2: Sounds like a wonderful conference, it's, and and I don't know if we mentioned when is the conference happening.
1: April twenty third, three weeks. All right, so it
0: sounds exciting, and I mean uh, it's really great to hear about all the awesome work you're doing at the Andrews Center because uh, it's really exciting to hear about you know us being involved here in Boise and Boise State and making the world a better place, um, and that's where a lot of us uh, started off our careers yeah. and came here. So it's really awesome to hear about your the work you're doing over there.
1: It's. Uh it's fun to be part of something. You know, we'd call it applied work, whatever we want to call it in the university. But helping people think about a problem, and I don't claim that we know how to solve it, but we know how to help get people in the room to solve it.
0: All right. Well, sounds good. So we're going to take a quick break, but then we're going to come back and uh, talk about some uh, other issues in the environment and so I'll talk about some more collaborative opportunities that John's working on.
2: We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Bud Wilson from Portland, Oregon's band, On, and you're listening to Radio Boise on K-R-B-X 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. (laughs) No, seriously,
0: though, this is Bud from On. You're listening to K-R-B-X.
1: Programming on Radio Boise comes in part by A-C-H-D Commuter Ride. Commuter Ride provides options for safe commuting throughout the Treasure Valley by helping plan walking and biking routes and offering car, van pooling, and transit options. You can plan your route and get more information on smart commuting options at commuteride.com or by calling 208-345-POOL. Early rocking blues,
0: classic country, vintage rock and roll, rockabilly, and a shot of gospel to get you through that Spoonful, heard every Sunday at 10 a.m. here on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM and 93.5 FM. Back on the Big Ten on Radio Boise, Um, here talking with John Freemuth uh, about the environments and public lands. And so, a couple of weeks ago, we had what was uh, a bit of a shocker for a lot of us, um, and seeing what was a huge public lands bill uh, Mm -hmm. passed by Congress and signed by our president. So, John, what what are your thoughts? Can you give us a little background on what this this bill does and and what you think of it?
1: Well, I think what we really need to reflect on is congress can actually get some stuff done in a bipartisan way i think part of the reason is key congressmen um uh, that have a you know a lot of power like lisa murkowski up in alaska very much you know interested in oil and gas development and things but understands the power of public lands with traditional public land boosters uh, you know that would be democrats a lot of citizens love their parks, whether they be national parks or local parks, and that gets into the Land and Water Conservation Fund that can fund these kinds of things. You know, this is, I guess you could say classic good green pork barrel. Everybody gets something out of it. They get wilderness potential in some cases they get access they get protection if if we you know it it moves the spirit of collaboration along so we can deal with these other tougher public land issues that are still in front of us sage grouse things like that and it shows they can they can do this kind of thing they can work collectively
2: Yeah. And I think we often, there's so much focus on the gridlock, right? That sometimes we do overlook where there are successes and where we do see bipartisan policy moving forward. Yes.
1: And and you study this uh, a lot more than I do, Jackie, but what are those conditions that allow this to happen? We all know about gridlock, but how did this happen?
2: Well, yeah. and, and you brought up right away, right, that a lot of people benefit from this, yes. right? And so it's easy to find that kind of um, compromise and, and get a coalition together yeah. to support it by everyone can see how their constituents yep. will benefit. Yep.
1: Yep, whether it be in the East Coast or out here in the West, where we are the public lands, really.
2: And apparently Indiana as well? Yeah did, uh, yeah,
1: did I read that correctly, that Indiana got their first national park out of this bill? It's possible, yeah. I mean, a lot of times they just upnamed them. They oh. were a protected area already. Like, Craters of the Moon uh, got very close to having the original part of it renamed a national park for a lot of reasons. And I don't want to digress into that too much, but, but it was... There were just a few interests in Idaho that misinterpreted the issue and they blocked it, but it. So that's how that tends to happen. They take an area that might have been a national monument. Great irony for the state of Utah, I would point out, and Congress upgrades it because only Congress can create a national park. And I don't know that exactly in Indiana, but I'm guessing. I think it was Indiana Dunes actually, and that was a national seashore first. Oh, okay. And it, there are actually some thirty. A, a names of, of park units they're not just national parks they're all sorts of things And there's only about 62 national parks but there's 400 units and that's an example of that
2: so that's like the national recreation areas yes. national forests those yeah. types of things
1: yeah yeah now national forests have always been that since the turn of the century they were reserves that the president's created but, yes, on your thing. Now, I was a ranger at a national recreation area, actually. Um, so you're exactly right, Jackie. And they're urban, they're rural, they're all kinds of things.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I grew up in Kansas, so near Topeka, where the Brown versus Board of Education oh, yeah. um, um, is now. And so, like, that's a very kind of urban uh, park. It
1: is. And to Luke's point, that's also some of the units of the park system are historic sites. I, I've said... That the National Park Service doesn't just protect the national parks. It's the keeper of America with our history and our our mistakes. We've got Minidoka <laughs> in Idaho, an internment site that's now a park unit, because it's telling that story of do we want to go through that again?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, right? Like it's not just recreation and access yes. to lands, but it's also important history, including stark moments in our history as well. Yeah, we
1: need to remind people that it, everything hasn't always been you know light yeah and so that's really interesting uh thinking about this bill because i I think
0: uh this administration and the senate that's connected to it has really been framed as anti-environment um Mm anti-conservation in a lot of ways really uh really pulling back some of those those protections that the obama administration put into place but when you look at a bill like this Mm -hmm. um i think it adds it sheds some interesting light on that um but we're particularly talking about like our national parks and they do a lot more than just preserve our environment right that preserve public lands it, it kind of helps you understand why this bill came to pass because it's not it does. it's not necessarily just a solely pro-environment bill it is a larger bill that economic really, yeah it's an economic driver and a lot of other things and so I, i'll definitely point out and john you probably know this better than i do that for a lot of rural areas in america their their national parks and their historic areas are huge tourism oh, attractions everywhere
1: i mean people uh, you know, obviously, some of the, the big ones out west take a lot of money to travel to if you're in the east. But, yeah, you. again, it's kind of a green pork park barrel. You know, as long as it meets the criteria, and sometimes Congress creates things that the Park Service probably went, that's not nationally significant, like <laughs> Steamtown, Pennsylvania, for example. But generally, people are proud of those areas, and they go to them, whether it be for history, or you know it's a grassland it's something like that more from where you're from jackie (laughs) and people you know it's it's having been a ranger and talked to a lot of visitors from abroad europe and elsewhere they they're just drawn to this system they i mean other countries have great protected areas costa rica but they're drawn to the american landscape and those parks they've read about them since they were children
2: Oh, I was just going to ask, where were you a ranger at?
1: Glen Canyon National Recreation Area and, and Lee's Ferry, which is where the river trips put in, to Grand Canyon. So I was all through that area. The Glen Canyon is Lake Powell, but it also has all kinds of wild country off the lake. It was a great place to work. Yeah, I bet. Is that where you got your inspiration to be a uh, professor of public policy? That's where I wanted to be a career park ranger, yes. and then my thinking evolved. Uh-huh. You know, I always wonder if I'd followed that other path. What I'd be doing, but yes, that is that. And trips when I was a kid with mom and dad coming west and going, seeing the Grand Canyon and going, "What is that?" You know. <laughs> Uh, me and my wife love to go
0: over to uh, Jackson, Wyoming, to Grand oh, Teton. Especially yeah. got married in the Grand Teton's National Park. And you I know, every know. time, every time I, <laughs> I like we go and I see that park, like it just reminds me of like what we're capable of, like as a yeah. government, when we all get together and think yeah. well and yeah. you know really plan things out, you can preserve something like amazing like that. We can um, that otherwise would not exist if it wasn't for our government. So uh, there are reminders of why yes. government is a solution and not just a problem. Gee, isn't that great to say? Yeah. I sure believe it. <laughs> it's it's rare to say it, but. Uh, it, it Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in the last uh, minute or so we have in this uh, segment, um, anything we should be thinking about or looking forward to in like public lands legislation, anything you think might be coming down the pipeline that our listeners should be paying attention to?
1: Um, You'll see people with individual bills now, like somebody wants to expand Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area, which is quite an urban area. In fact, the Park Service stopped wearing the uniform because of a lot of Hispanics go there, many of which not been in the U.S. that long, and they think they're they're border guys. Oh, interesting! But they're not. So the Park guys are just wearing shirts like I'm wearing with a little Arrowhead insignia. So you'll see stuff like that. You know, that was an omnibus bill, so those things take time to develop a huge bill like that. Um, maybe there'll be a push here in Idaho again for craters. We got that close. Um, There's going to be a lot of stuff on water. And, of course, water is related to land because of the decline in um, um, snowpacks and droughts lately. We're going to have to manage that one. But that's not really public lands, but it's related.
0: All right. Sounds like interesting stuff. Um, So for our listeners, uh, definitely go back, and I'm sure you can find all kind of articles on the public lands bill and uh, pay attention because this is an an interesting issue. But uh, we will be back after a short break.
1: All right. Hi, I'm Mike.
2: And I'm Monique.
1: We're We're Alien Alien Knife Fight. And you're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Community radio for Boise and beyond. Idaho Conservation League. Since 1973, protecting the air you breathe, the water you drink, and the places you love. To learn more about Idaho's leading voice for conservation, visit IdahoConservation.org or call
2: 345-6933. For the past decade, women have dominated the airwaves. That's what you'll hear on Femme Fatale. From riot girls to rockabilly queens. And garage dames to cry your heart out crooners. Tune in to Femme Fatale on KRBX Saturdays, five to seven, with me, Sadie Mayhem, on Radio Boise.
0: We're back on the Big Ten on Radio Boise, and uh, once again, we're here talking to, with uh, John Freemuth from the Andrews Center about environment and public lands and lots of exciting things. And so, John, earlier you are talking about a, a conference that the Andrews Center is hosting, um, but you're also going to a meeting conference with the Western Governors Association in mm-hmm. a couple of weeks, correct?
1: Yes, I am. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you're going to be doing there? I've been working with them essentially as a moderator. On It started when Governor Mead was governor of Wyoming, and he was trying to talk about intelligent uh, dealing and in reform of the Endangered Species Act. And I stress intelligent, not gutting. And I moderated a thing because Governor Otter hosted it. And then I sort of got a last-minute call to come moderate another one on rangeland reform um, and forestry issues that Governor Bullock of Montana had worked on, and Governor Mead came to that, and Governor Hickenlooper came to that. It led to some other things to moderate. This is a big one. Uh, it's sort of called Working Landscapes, but it's about cross-boundary, um, you know, collaboration getting along. There are so many different managers and owners of the, of the land out here. There's the feds, whether it's BLM, Park Service, Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife. There's state lands and state agencies. There are private lands. These problems are don't stop at the border. You know, a classic would be grizzly bears don't go, oh, there's the border of Yellowstone. I better not cross it. Oh, they don't? They don't have like a little map that's... <laughs> no, we haven't taught them to read yet. Uh. Um, and so it, they are bringing... Now, I, there will not be governors at this one. The, the governors tend to come my, mainly to their two conferences a year. This year, they are in ones in Vail, ones in Las Vegas. Um, but they get people in the room to talk about aspects of this issue, whether it be what they call regulatory certainty. In other words, if you're a private landowner and you do something with some of your land to protect habitat because there's a species around, you get certainty that somebody won't try to come back in and regulate you again with a surprise. It's kind of no surprises. Um, It's dealing with these these issues out there that are, you know, the sage-grouse issue has not gone away. There's a lot of conflict over what this administration has done, but a lot of cautious, optimistic among either and some Western Democratic governors. But if we do not protect that bird in 2020, Fish and Wildlife has to look at it again. And if they don't think we've done enough, they will recommend a listing. So it's trying to keep that momentum going to make sure we can avoid that that kind of thing. Um, it's just all those sort of things about bringing people together on these various Western landscape level issues to create relationships and momentum. So, you know, what's neat about the Western governors, it's a bipartisan group. And uh, take it back to C. Sanders for a minute. One of the things he used to tell me, and I, again, I did not work with him when he's an elected official, is governors are where the action is, you're the boss. That's why I was never intri- that intrigued with being a, a senator, for example. Um, and, and when you get a bipartisan group who are essentially executive managers, they want to get stuff done. They want to try to solve problems. They have politics, but as a collective group, uh, and, and the Western Governors is bigger than people think. It includes middle American states like Texas is in the Western Governors Association. On a lot of these public land issues, they're not going to be as involved um as some of our governors like governor little will be and by the way there's eight or nine new governors this time after the election they're now into the western governors association so that'll be fun for me to watch
2: yeah i mean it's an interesting challenge but also a really great opportunity right to have some, some new governors new stakeholders coming to yeah. the table for these dis- important discussions yes
1: it is and again the the staff of the western governors are, are integral to kind of educating the governors with their own staffers and and okay what are what are some solutions to this or or difficulties we need we need to deal with and manage
0: yeah and so jackie maybe you can uh tell me a little bit more about but uh, the western governors association is kind of a unique group as far as like regionally like bringing together a group of governors to work together on collective problems and particularly in the environment right that's That's really interesting because, and my own work looks at this, is like rarely do do we set up the jurisdictional lines of states to go along with environmental problems. Rarely (laughs) is the
1: key word. (laughs) The
0: uh, the environmental problems came later, and then we just are trying to manage across these lines. And so tend to be when we find the most success is when we find ways to work across jurisdictional lines, across some of these institutions. Um, And so that makes uh, the Western governors really unique in being able to do this and find the successes they have been, right?
1: It does. And it also allows them – I know Jim Ogsbury, who is the ED, was back testifying on the Hill about these issues because the other side of this is the rest of the country really doesn't have a clue about especially the public lands, what's out here. Um, You know, as a ranger, I got asked things that were questions to be asked by the Forest Service. Easterners have no idea who the BLM is. But out here, they are the key manager of the estate that's got the sage grouse on it and oil and gas. So, whoa, they're important.
0: Uh, I think one of the best stories you told me was uh, when the standoff in Oregon was going on and they called and uh, asked you about BLM. And they're like, why is Black Lives Matter involved in why, this? Yeah,
1: why is Black Lives Matter? I said, what are you talking about? And they said, the BLM, I said, no, that's the Bureau of Land Management. They're two great guys from Philly. And they go, who the hell are they? And I said, well, they manage more land than anybody else. And they were like, really? And then they wanted me to talk about it. They had no clue. Why should they? Not BLM, there is no BLM land in it, the East.
2: It is like from growing up in an area with limited public land, like some state parks. But yeah. coming out here, it's just kind of um, just a really difficult to understand until you live in the West, yeah. the role and the size of oh, these public lands. It
1: is. And the, the inherent tension, I'm talking in. I'm on sabbatical. I'm not te- usually teaching my public lands class. Monica Hubbard is. And she's doing a great job. But I'm talking about federalism in the public lands tonight because there's this tension always between the states and the federal government. 61% of Idaho is managed by the federal government. 61%. Another 10% by the state. So that's a lot Mm -hmm. you know it makes
2: a difference and that's why it's so important to have governors in the region come together and their their staff and stakeholders to try to figure out some of these issues and learn from one another it's so so important
1: yeah and again a lot they do some of that when they get together but they do develop great relationships with each other that cross the partisan line um cease when he headed it twice and we actually headed the National Governors Association once um, and maybe one of these guys will go or women will go on and also be able to represent the West at the National Governor's Association as their as their chair that could be great you know and definitely and I've talked about it on the show
0: before uh, moving out here from the south and that, <laughs> it has been uh, A learning experience in a lot of different ways. But I think for most Americans, uh, we spend our entire lives in the states that we grew up in or the cities that we grew up in. And so definitely have an opportunity to live somewhere different and understanding like, oh, wait, the issues that are in Mississippi and Georgia are not the same issues in Idaho. And there's a different orientation to how we feel about the environment. And that's one of those things that, like, you definitely notice. Like, people have a certain respect and orientation towards public lands that I just have never lived in or, or been around before. Yeah. So that was definitely a, an interesting experience.
1: There's a great writer that a lot of, of people who, who read about this stuff would rem, recognize his name is Wallace Stegner. And he once said something to the effect of the environmental movement began in the battles over the Western public lands because Westerners live on those lands. They recreate, they use them for economic development and things in ways outside of some ex- excuse me exceptions, the rest of the country does not. And But you did get married at Grand Teton, so you are learning quickly. <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. My wife loves it too,
1: so... All right. Well, uh, unfortunately, I think we're about out of time, but, John, I'm going to give you one last opportunity to plug the Andres Conference, if you want. Yeah, if people care about that, um, you get to see a lot of neat speakers, meet some people, have a nice uh, opening little breakfast and a reception, and put get your point of view out there and, and, and hear from some very informed people.
2: And the title <laughs> of the conference is Energy, Salmon, Agriculture, and Community, Can We Come Together?
1: And you can find that on the Andrews Center website, yes. correct? All right. Yeah, just navigate in through BSU to the Andrews Center. All right. Sounds like
0: uh, interesting stuff. Well, uh, this was the the Big Ten on Radio Boys, and we appreciate you listening again.